Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Vegan Food and Living's Simply Vegan podcast with me, Holly Johnson, and my co-host, Gabriella Clark. With a new episode live every Tuesday, we discuss the latest vegan news, taste test the newest vegan products, and chat to some of the leading names in veganism. Hello and welcome to series three. We're so happy to have you here and really excited for a brand new series of the Simply Vegan podcast. Um, we would love to hear from you as always. So please leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. And also don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Simply Vegan Podcast to let us know what you think. Um, as I said, we had a little break last week. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, as they say. So hopefully you're excited to join us for a brand new series. Um, and Gabriella, you have some really exciting news as well, don't you? Do you want to share it with the, our listeners? Of course, I'd love to. I have been keeping a little secret the past couple of uh, series, so I am expecting a baby. Yay! Simply Vegan Podcast <laughs> baby! <laughs> the first one, powered by all the amazing vegan food that we've been tasting over the last couple of series. Yes! And it's due July, is that right? It is, yeah. First week of July, I'm due. Um, my first baby. And so, yeah, we're very, very excited. So have you done lots of reading around the vegan diet and pregnancy? Lots of reading. So in my big group of girlfriends, I am the last one to have a baby, um, but the first one to do it vegan. So of all the things I've been able to rely on my friends for and ask all those questions, um, the diet side and, and veganism side was something that I didn't have support 
on or um, kind of first-hand knowledge from friends and stuff. So I did do a lot of reading. Some of the reading out there, if you delve too far into Dr. Google, can be quite um, overwhelming. So definitely you need to pick and choose the articles that you're reading, you know, rely on the information that's out there from the NHS. The Vegan Society is also really great. Um, But you know, there's no reason why you can't have a really healthy, amazing vegan pregnancy. Yeah, sadly, I wasn't vegan when I had my two children. So um, that was, you know, my son's nine and my daughter's 14. I've been enviously watching uh, Gabriella, just the little bump growing, thinking, oh, it's just amazing. Um, what What are the main the sort of key points, um, in t- you know, if someone is planning uh, for a baby and they're vegan or you know they are pregnant what what sort of main pointers would you give so I'd say um for me for the first 12 weeks I chose not to take a multivitamin and I stuck to folic acid and a really good dose of vitamin d um and luckily I had amazing support from my GP who around about eight weeks sent me to have some blood tests where they checked all my levels of things like iron, B12, um, just to check that, you know, my diet up until falling pregnant was fulfilling enough and that my levels were high enough. And luckily everything looked really good. So I just continued as I was. And then once I hit kind of post 12 weeks, I then did switch to a vegan multivitamin by a brand called Terra Nova. So they do a vegan prenatal multivitamin. Um, and I've taken two a day from, from the 12 week point. And I have to say, I have been so lucky. I'm not sure if I can, can attribute it all to being vegan, but I have had an amazing pregnancy so far. No sickness, um, no headaches obviously battling a bit with some some tiredness in first trimester but generally I felt really really good. That's fantastic news I have to say with both pregnancies I felt horrendous so I'd love to try it again as a vegan but I'm not gonna (laughs) not gonna do that just for a vegan experiment it's a bit drastic isn't it? (laughs) It's um it's definitely yeah it's it's easy to easy to do you do definitely feel more responsibility to to make sure you're getting everything that you need but as I say that check-in around eight weeks where all my levels were checked was a huge reassurance for me Mm. um and then the funnily enough I had one food aversion one thing that I went off between sort of 10 weeks and 20 weeks and that was tofu (laughs) can't believe it that baby no we need the tofu I had had to have a word with baby and say come on now we can't be vegan and not fancying tofu Um, (laughs) which it did make me laugh of all the things that I uh, could have developed a bit of a food aversion to tofu had to be it but I'm pleased to say I'm out the other side of that I'm back on my tofu and I'm feeling good brilliant is it normal for doctors to do blood tests at eight weeks? Because I know they didn't with me, but obviously times have probably changed. So I don't, and again, I'm only speaking from my experience, but I am, um, after doing a bit of reading and falling down a, 
a bit of a Google rabbit hole, which I probably shouldn't have done, I did start to worry about whether I should be taking things like a B12 supplement on top um, because I'd gone to buy a pregnancy safe B12 and none of them were labeled safe for pregnancy that I could find. Right. So I called my GP because um, I didn't know whether they'd have to prescribe one or just give me the okay that it was safe. And luckily my GP was like, well, let's just check your levels. I don't want to give you extra supplements if you don't need them. Um, And they were all really, really high. Um, So I think your body stores B12 for a long time in your liver, I believe. Um, And I've only been vegan for three years, so I don't know whether I already had good reserves from that, but I also have supplemented as a vegan previously. And eat my fair share of nutritional yeast goes in and on everything and so luckily it was good enough for me just to last till that post 12 weeks point and then I switched to a a really good multivitamin that now has b12 iron all vitamin d's b's everything in isn't it funny how us vegans are so sort of um concerned about getting all our you know the right nutrition and all the right levels whereas you know you could you could be a meat eater and eat absolute junk you know and never even consider that you might be deficient in anything I think that was the hardest thing for me because obviously choosing to be vegan is something I've decided for myself um and you know it's still whilst it's growing hugely as I say in my friendship group I am the only one and you do sort of worry or I did at the beginning that I was doing everything right not just for me but for the baby as well Um, and I did take on quite a lot of responsibility and I suppose in a way fear that am I giving this baby everything that it needs to develop properly so um, I can definitely see how for a first-time mum And if you are newly vegan or have been vegan a couple of years, how it can be daunting. But my experience so far, as I say, I'm almost 28 weeks now. Um, There's no reason why you can't have a really healthy, energized vegan pregnancy. I feel so lucky to feel so good. I'm so pleased to hear that. I think it's funny, isn't it? Because like you say, you're the only one out of your friends. And sometimes you can live in a little vegan bubble where you kind of think, you know, most people are going vegan now, or most people are vegetarian or flexitarians or whatever term you want to give it. And then sometimes you you sort of get a little wake up call and you realize that, you know, we are very much in the minority. Um, However, there is a new study that sort of ties in nicely, actually, to um, the news article is on the Vegan Food and Living, Living website. Um, A new study shows that veganism could replace the traditional diet, which is obviously meat, fish, dairy, and, you know, vegetables and everything else, um, within the next hundred years. So, wow. Yeah. So, you know, maybe not in our lifetime, but maybe in our children's lifetimes, they might, um, might see the end of, end of factory farming and horrible things like that. And, and everyone will be plant-based. And actually, you know, you say a hundred years and that isn't in our lifetime, but actually that's not a long a long time to see such a huge shift so that's amazing yeah it's not you never know I mean being vegan we might live to 130 (laughs) 140 (laughs) 
but yeah not if we keep eating all the vegan junk foods <laughs> I know I have to say um it's it's been a, amazing an amazing time to be pregnant you know lockdown has been quite weird but it's meant that I've had a lot of time at home to really kind of connect and and rest and grow my baby which has been wonderful but um my advice if you are also vegan and either trying to conceive or you are not to fall down the google rabbit hole because I really did and especially on forums there was a lot of um anecdotal experience of not just vegan pregnancies but vegan children raising vegan children um oh well there's a boy in my child's class at primary school and I'm not saying it's because he's vegan but he's definitely the most pale (laughs) there's lots of that so you just have to ignore that and like I said I had great support from my doctor midwives have all been really supportive don't even see it as a real factor and as long as you're eating healthily and you're feeling good then yeah go ahead so we've been taste testing some ice cream, haven't we? Which, you know, ice cream and pregnancy, this is like, they're just the dream team, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, in one breath, I'm saying, make sure you have a healthy vegan pregnancy. And then in the next breath, I'm taste testing vegan ice cream. <laughs> but like you say, those uh, those evenings where you're tired and you're very hungry, which I have been, I can't complain, it's come in very handy. It's everything in moderation, isn't it? And, you know, a little treat now and again isn't going to kill us. So exactly. We are. Yeah, we were very excited to receive um, the Wicked Kitchen range. So I tried the birthday cake flavor vegan ice cream, the uh, cookie dough. They're both £2.50 and the chocolate and red berry cones, which are also £2.50. The birthday cake flavor was literally like being a kid again (laughs) it was so good it was um it's you know those like uh sort of sponge tray bakes you get with the sort of buttercream icing on top and the sprinkles I have to say I didn't try this flavor but when you said birthday cake that is exactly what I pictured it's exactly like that it's um creamy vanilla um it's just it's like happiness in a tub if if I had to describe it and for £2.50 I think that is brilliant value so that was definitely my favorite the cookie dough one was really nice as well um chai latte is also in the range and I haven't been able to get hold of that so I really want to try that that sounds lovely like a really nice warming kind of cinnamon and, and things like that um the red berry cones were great um I'm not a huge fan of chocolate ice cream so they're like a lovely waffle cone with chocolate ice cream red berries and then like chocolate over the top um I I wouldn't usually go for chocolate ice cream but again they were really nice the red berries just kind of lifted um the flavor and gave it that little bit of extra sweetness so um yeah definitely a fan um which which ones did you try so I tried the um cookie dough as well and then I also tried mint chocolate chip um for me the mint chocolate chip was delicious it was really refreshingly minty but then had big delicious chunks of chocolate inside as well 
um, really just reminiscent of a good mint chocolate creamy ice cream. And like you, the price of their vegan ice cream, because often when you go to purchase in a supermarket, you are faced with vegan ice creams being almost double the price of of others. So um, was really impressed with that one. For me, the cookie dough was more like, I found it more like just a chocolate chip rather than that kind of fudgy cookie dough that I um, recall from other brands or even pre being vegan. But it was still, it was still delicious, just definitely more like a a vanilla-y chocolate chip to me. Yeah. Well done, Derek Sarno. You've uh, pulled it out the bag as usual. (laughs) Um, Next, we reviewed a more luxury product. It's Raw's new salted caramel and macadamia uh, ice cream tub available at Tesco, Sainsbury's and Ocado and also M&S um, actually in April. This is £5 so it is more of a premium price however tucking into it it really feels like a luxury product and a real treat. I really like this. Um, it was it was really creamy and milky. I loved the caramelized macadamias and the salted caramel was was just right. It wasn't too salty. I, I can't stand it when salted caramel is like the salt is the overpowering flavor. Mm. Um, and I really, really like this brand. They've got like a conscious mindset. Um, they're, you know, free from palm oil. They have a long-term term partnership with a charity that supports tigers. And yeah, it's all sort of, you know, high quality ingredients that are sort of quite natural. What did you think of this one? Yeah, I'm a really big fan of this brand. So they uh, they kindly sent us the salted caramel and macadamia flavor, which was lovely. But coincidentally, the week before, we had actually bought... Um, the hazelnut chocolate cookie flavour. Um, we'd had a very indulgent night, pizza and ice cream. <laughs> and I know. And we were blown away by this flavour. For me, one of the best vegan ice creams I've tasted that you can buy in a supermarket. Again, you know, as you say, five pounds, look a bit on the pricier end. But for that treat, it was so decadent. The hazelnut, and then you had this really fudgy delicious kind of cookie dough through the ice cream Um, and then like the chocolatey base of of the actual ice cream itself it was absolutely sensational so I definitely preferred that flavor to the salted caramel even though I'm a salted caramel fan um I'd say if you're going to buy one for me hazelnut chocolate cookie was brilliant I need to try that one. Do you think it was worth the money then? Yeah, I do. For that flavour, for sure. Um, It was indulgent. It was rich. Um, Certainly, you know, if you were serving it alongside a dessert, like a scoop of ice cream alongside a dessert for a dinner party, it would feel really luxurious. And definitely, I challenge anyone to figure out that it was vegan for those uh, dairy, dairy eaters, dairy lovers. Um, but probably for that price point, not something I'm going to add regularly to the to the weekly shop. No. So that's probably a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, the final ice cream that we tried were the new Magnums. They are vegan sea salt and caramel, and they're three pound sixty nine for three. Um, so I think that's a little bit pricier than the non vegan ones, isn't it? 
Mm, yeah. Um, but yeah, I really like these. I didn't get a huge um, sort of sea salt caramel flavor. They they tasted almost more like vanilla with with dark chocolate on the outside. I did really like them. Um, but yeah, I didn't get a huge a huge sort of caramel or salty hit. So I wasn't actually able to find the salted caramel ones in my couple of local supermarkets that I tried. Um, however, I tried the normal ones and the almond ones from the vegan Magnum range. And for me, especially the almond is, is delicious. And they, again, from what I can remember, are just really a real exact match from the, the non-vegan versions. Um, like you say, a little bit pricier, but hopefully as demand increases, that will be offset. Um, yeah. But I'd be interested to try salted caramel because usually I'm a huge lover, but I haven't found an amazing vegan salted caramel uh, ice cream product yet. Mm. So Yeah, I really like the almond ones. And I actually bought some cheaper ones. I think they were own brand from maybe Morrison's, but they weren't anywhere near as good as the Magnum almond ones so I think they yeah they're definitely um, perhaps a favorite from the range well that's the end of our taste test for this week don't forget to leave us a review let us know what you want to hear us taste test do you want to hear us taste test do you want to talk us to talk about news what do you want to hear from us Uh, we'd love to hear from you Next up, I'll be speaking to Dale Vince OBE, who you may or may not have heard of. He is a really fascinating character. He's the chair of the world's first vegan football team, Forest Green Rovers, which he stepped in to save and um, basically turned the whole team vegan, stopped serving meat at the football ground, um, implemented loads of uh, sustainable uh, practices so they're now I think they're carbon negative or carb- carbon neutral he built his own wind turbine <laughs> earlier <laughs> on in his career like you do and uh, he's uh, yeah he he's the owner of Ecotricity which is a renewable energy company so a fascinating man extremely intelligent and uh, definitely worth a listen I'm really excited to hear this interview. Actually, my partner is a huge football fan. And so um, we've kind of read lots of bits and pieces about this uh, club on and off. Um, And so I'm really interested. And I just think it's such an amazing way to bring veganism to, you know, the mainstream and maybe a group of people who are new to it. So um, can't wait to hear this interview. Dale, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Um, Shall we start right at the beginning and talk about at what point in your life you discovered veganism? Well, I I guess I discovered veganism when I lived on the road. This would have been uh, the late 70s, early 80s. Um, But I had concerns about eating animals since I was a kid, probably age seven or something like that. Uh, It struck me wrong to kill them. uh, And I found the experience of eating them to be challenging actually emotionally and physically challenging uh, so I guess that was like my first step down that road and um, vegetarianism back then well, I mean we're talking late 60s early 70s that was a, a a very radical very unusual thing and and mostly the 
reaction of people to the idea of not eating animals or to the idea that eating animals was bad uh, would be aggressive, I would say. Yeah, but my parents certainly were. Yeah, yeah. I was vegetarian for about four years when I was little. And um, yeah, it was kind of like you just kind of got the processed vegetarian options, didn't you? Instead of having like, you know, a lot more vegetables or anything. It wasn't really necessarily a healthier alternative when <laughs> your parents didn't understand. Yeah, I didn't even have that choice. You know, um, <clears throat> I think, you know, for my family, there was something wrong with suggesting there was something wrong with eating animals. You know, that was like uh, it was a given that it was normal. That's what you did. And uh, and there was something wrong with me for, for not liking that. So at what point did you sort of become really passionate about the environment? Again, that bothered me since I was a kid. Um, I remember aged about 11, looking at all the cars on the road and wondering where all of the fuel came from. Uh, I tried to imagine how much there was in all of the cars on the road. I obviously couldn't see them all. I could just see some, but I knew there were others. And and I wondered then where it came from and when it would run out. And it bothered me that nobody talked about that, but I knew that it would run out because everything does. Um, so that bothered me. I'd say I think it's innate. This concern for the environment has is, is been within me. And then I spent 10 years living on the road trying to find like a, another way to live, a lower impact alternative way to live. Uh, and then landed in Stroud in the early 90s with the idea of building a big windmill. So my life's been like a journey, I guess, driven by these concerns, I would say. So, I mean, most people with sort of concerns about the state of the planet might, you know, sign a few petitions, perhaps even go vegan. But you been, built a wind turbine. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> Well, I, I lived on the road, as I mentioned, for about 10 years. And I lived in a in a bunch of different vehicles in a bunch of different countries and laybys and parks and fields and stuff like that. And it's a really um, self-reliant, self-sufficient kind of lifestyle. But at the beginning of that 10 years, for light, all we had was candles. Um, and by the end of that 10 years, I had a little windmill and I had some old batteries from a train I got from a scrapyard and, and some little lights from a boat, 12 volt lights. And and so my lights then were wind powered. And so I, I kind of got a, a familiarity with the idea of making energy from the wind uh, towards the end of that decade. And I was parked on this hill outside Stroud, 1991, with a windmill on my trailer and when you live that way, you know if you're parked in a windy place, and I knew it was. And I saw the first big windmills built in Cornwall, the first in Britain in uh, the early 90s, 1991. And uh, I was just inspired by the thought, really, that I could live another 10 years of this low-impact lifestyle myself, or I could try and drop back in and build a big windmill on this windy hill I lived on. And, you know... Over the years, we'd often sit around a campfire, our sippies, and talk about, you know, they should do that and they should do this. And I, I was quite kind of um, motivated to to be the they in that conversation, you know, jump in and do something. Well, you clearly have done a lot since then. Um, so how did you go from building your own, you know, one windmill to ecotricity? I guess it was an organic process. Uh, the first windmill was like a crazy idea. It was a three or four hundred thousand pound project, though I didn't know that at the time. And I lived in a trailer. I had no money, no no training, and and that kind of stuff. And it took five years to beat every obstacle and finally build it. And just as I was about to build it, the year before, I could see that it was coming, and I thought, yeah, maybe I should build some more. 
Um, and in order to do that, I went to see the local power company. They were monopoly buyers back then of generation. So if you built a generator, you had to sell it to them. Uh, this was the MEB around where we live. I went to see them to offer them this new kind of energy, green electricity, and they just laughed at the idea. And actually, they they said, here's our price. You know, you can't go anywhere else. It was a rubbish offer. Uh, and I left that meeting having uh, decided that the only way to build more windmills was to get a fair price for the power. And the only way to do that was to cut out the middleman, this, this awkward energy company. And at the same time, um, the electricity market was liberalizing. So it was possible to be an independent energy company for the first time. And so I, I got some forms from Ofgem, filled them in, faxed them across. There's probably only half a dozen bits of paper. There was no business plan in there. And I got a license to be an energy company and started a company, um, well, started Ecotricity in 1995. Incredible story. <laughs> I mean, where, where did you get the funding? Well, there was no funding. I mean, we had no money, only the money that we made. Um, the, the, the windmill story itself kind of uh, is, is interesting because it became self-funding. So the first thing that I discovered I needed to do to build a windmill was to measure the wind on, on my site. And it had to be at the height of the windmill that I proposed to build, in, in which case, in, in my case, it was 30 meters at the time. And I didn't have the money to buy a mast and, and the equipment for that, but I, I had the ability to build one. So I built my own. And that quickly turned into a business, building masts for farmers. Uh, Scottish Power entered the wind industry in the early 90s, and I did a whole series for them. And that funded the next steps of my windmill building myself. And, uh, and helped me form uh, Ecotricity as well. And how has it grown in the, you know, since you started it? Well, I think today we're like 750 people strong as a team of people. Um, our turnover is about £250 million, which is mad. We've got about 100 windmills, uh, about 100 megawatts of, of wind energy. Um, and um, we've done, obviously, we've done more than energy as well. I one of my founding thoughts was to try to change the way electricity was made in the early 90s because I discovered that it was the biggest single source of carbon emissions in Britain. And it was about the same time that I became aware of the climate crisis. It used to be called climate change back then. It's yeah. been upgraded now more recently. <laughs> and, and so I, I thought it makes sense to focus on the big single source of carbon emissions, um, which is what it did. In the early 2000s, with that kind of well underway, I thought it's time to look out for the next biggest sources of emissions and found that second and third on the list were transport and food. And that the three together, energy, transport and food, is 80% of everybody's carbon footprint. And for me, that was a really empowering finding. And so we've we've been working since then on projects in energy, transport and food. Uh, in transport, we built the Nemesis, Britain's first electric car in 2008, uh, then we built the electric highway, uh, first national network of charging points for electric cars, and there were none on the road when we built it in 2011. And really, that was to break the chicken and egg problem that nobody would buy cars because there was nowhere to charge, and nobody built anywhere to charge because nobody had cars. Um, and, and in food, we've long been advocates of uh, veganism, plant-based living, and that's most visible through our rescue of our local football club, Forest Green Rovers, in 2010. So before, before we talk about Forest Green Rovers, um, what would you say, I mean, a lot of people are, you know, on a journey with veganism, aren't they? And, and it might not be environmental reasons that bring them to veganism. It could be health or animals. Um, but I think as you go along and you kind of learn and read and kind of watch, you know, things like Seaspiracy and stuff like that, um, 
you obviously, you know, realize um, what is going on around you. What would you say to people who have yet to switch to renewable energy supplies like Ecotricity? Uh, I would say if you can do so, but if you can't or don't want to, it doesn't matter actually, because the grid is being greened up underneath you. And I think, you know, maybe 10 years from now, we'll be at 80 or 90% green energy on the grid and it will no longer matter. People won't need to go out and consciously choose green energy because it's, it's fast becoming the default, which is not like a, <laughs> it's not like a motivational response that is it to say to people, join, join a green energy company. <laughs> I mean, I, I think they should, absolutely, and it will help us get there faster. But there are some people that won't and there are some people that can't. And, and to them, I would say it doesn't matter. Well, that's good to know. It's one less thing to worry about for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Forest Green Rovers, um, it's the world's first vegan football team. And presumably they weren't all vegan before you started working with them. No, um, not at all. It was a very conventional non-league football club. And uh, it was a kind of rescue mission. It was a rescue mission that started in 2010. I didn't really want to get involved in football, but I didn't want to see this local club go uh, bankrupt and um, took responsibility for it. And they immediately bumped into a whole series of things that had to change, things that were done at the club and generally in football as well that I just didn't like, didn't sit with our, our ethos at Ecotricity. So we started making changes and quickly realized that we'd be building a green football club in the process and that actually we'd be talking to a new audience of people, taking a message that, you know, it was, was rarely taken to this to these people, football fans, um, who on the face of it wouldn't be very receptive. You know, we wouldn't be preaching to the choir. And that made it quite more compelling to me, really. Um, <laughs> so that's what we did. And, you know, that was 10 years ago now. And we've become, according to FIFA and the United Nations, the greenest football club in the world. We went carbon neutral with the UN a few years ago. And actually... We, uh, we're founding signatories of a UN program, Sport for Climate Action, which is about engaging all forms of sport, organizing bodies and clubs around the world in the same stuff that Forest Green has done in an attempt to reach fans of sport through their favorite sport and get them engaged in the fight against the climate crisis, which is the most amazing outcome from the rescue of a local football club. Absolutely amazing. I mean, did you kind of sit them all down one day and say, right, lads, <laughs> We're all going vegan. And if you did, what did they say? <laughs> it, it happened on probably day one or day two of having responsibility for the club. And I was sat in the main suite and the players were there having some post-training food. And I saw that it was a, a beef lasagna and I was horrified because it meant that I was part of the meat trade because I was responsible for Forest Green. Yeah. And I spoke to the coach and the chef straight away and said, look, we have to stop this. And they said, yeah, no problem. You know, they're up for it. And when it came to the players, we, we spoke to them about it from a performance point of view. We said to them that serious athletes don't eat red meat. You know, it will impair your performance and we'll give you something better. And they were just simply up for it. They had no problem with it. Oh, amazing. And they've oh. are they a vegan sort of all of them full time or a bit of a Some mixture? Are. Yeah, it is a mixture. Every season we'll have a couple of players that take that lifestyle home with them and go vegan themselves or with their families. Um, and, and often I'm asked, like, you know, are they contracted to be vegans, for example? So just to clarify, what it, what it actually means is all of the food that we make at the club, whether we're serving it to players, to staff or to fans, that's all vegan. 
Uh, so when anybody eats with us, that's what they eat. But what they do in their own time, we don't tell them. Yeah, yeah, it's a good way to work it. Yeah. So do you think we're at the beginning of a green industrial revolution? Yeah, I think we are. Absolutely. I think it's underway, um, particularly in green energy. So when I got started in the early 90s, in terms of modern forms of renewable energy, wind and sun, we had none, um, virtually none, you know, less than, way less than 1%. And today we've got nearly 50%. This is in England, or sorry, in Britain. Um, And I think if we really went for it in the next 10 years, we could get to 100%, but I don't think we will uh, because we've got the wrong government at the moment. Uh, but anyway, from 0 to 50 in 25 years is pretty good going. I think the um, the revolution in cars has arguably been faster. In 2008, I tried to buy an electric car and there were none in the world, so we made one. Um, in 2011, we started the electric highway and you could buy a car then, a Nissan Leaf with a range of 80 miles and charges at that time were seven kilowatts. If you fast forward just 10 years to today, charging technology is 350 kilowatts and cars have got a range of 300 miles. And I think 10% of all car sales last year were electric, but the government has said in 10 years time, you won't be allowed to buy a conventional car, which kind of sounds bold, but actually the industry themselves are planning to stop making them before that. And so in just 20 years, we'll have gone from no electric cars on the roads to it being the only car you can buy, which is, I think, an incredible pace of change. Mm-hmm. And in, in food as well, I think the last two or three years, we've seen a really big um, rise in the awareness and the interest and the uptake, really, of, of plant-based eating. And you know, more and more manufacturers are bringing out um, plant-based alternatives. It's in supermarkets, cafes, restaurants, everywhere. Even fast food joints have got plant-based options. And for me, it's like a uh, it's like a snowball or a positive feedback uh, effect because the more availability, the more people try it and buy it, and the more people do that, the more businesses feel that demand and make more available. And so it kind of is a feedback loop, you know, and it's growing very rapidly, which I think is a brilliant thing. So I say, yeah, in terms of energy transport and food, the green industrial revolution is well underway. You sound very hopeful and positive. A lot of people I speak to um, don't, you know, feel that way. They don't feel like things are changing fast enough. Yeah. I guess I guess it's easy to fall into that mindset, and maybe I'm just closer to stats than, uh, than, than a lot of people are, or closer to the action. You know, this is where I've been living my life, um, so you know, maybe I'm just closer to what's actually happening. But I'm I'm a very positive person anyway, and these changes now they're inevitable. You know, to fight the climate crisis, we've got to stop burning fossil fuels and we've got to stop eating animals. Just those two things is all we have to do. It's actually a big ask, although it's a simple ask, uh, but inherent in all of those, sorry, inherent in those two bad practices uh, are all of the problems that we face, all of the various crises, um, habitat depletion, wildlife extinction, human health, the air that we breathe, not just the food that we eat. And of course, the climate crisis, all of them come from just two things, burning fossil fuels and farming animals. That makes it feel a lot less overwhelming to deal with. It's it's okay, we've just got those two things to deal with. We'll be all right. (laughs) And it's really that simple. And and I love that. And And I think uh, part of part of what I try to do is bring simplicity to this debate because it is overwhelming for a lot of people. Uh, the idea of just the climate crisis, never mind all of the other crises that we face, is like, well, what role can I play in that? And actually, 
All of us every day make decisions in energy, transport and food. It's about how we power ourselves, how we travel and what we eat. And, and our spending decisions determine which way the world goes around. We've got a lot of agency in this, but it does boil down to just two things, you know, use renewable energy, stop eating animals. Mm. Do you think that you would consider going for prime minister? <laughs> yeah, I think you'd a, be great. <laughs> thanks very much. If it was a more open system, seriously, I might give it a go. But you know, it's not an open system. You've got to be leader of one of two big parties, haven't you? And probably to have spent a few decades in politics, which you know I'm, I'm not a fan of. Although increasingly, I think politics is the answer. I think it's the weak link in everything because we have the technology and we can see the need to change how we live and change our economy. And people want it as well. Businesses are responding. And I think government are really behind the curve. They have the big levers, taxes, subsidies and uh, regulations. You know, they determine which way the world really operates. And uh, they're the people that need to make the most important changes right now. Mm, come on, Boris. Yeah. Get going. <laughs> Um, Here's where my optimism fails. Me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, what do you think about the pandemic, just to finish off? Do you think that's helped things or hindered it? I think it helped things uh, because it was a radical interruption in business as usual or life as usual. And it also uh, taught us what we're capable of when faced with a real existential threat. The climate crisis often seems too remote and, and too global in scale to be you know, very real. The pandemic was right in our faces, killing people that we knew uh, immediately. And, uh, you know, look at what we did. We spent £400 billion in one year dealing with that. That's, um, you know, that's an entire um, budget to get to, to carbon zero as a, as a country. That's it, all done in one year. Um, and of course, we endured the most incredible changes to our lifestyles through the various lockdowns and stuff. We weren't keen on it, of course, but but we did it because it was the right thing to do. And actually, to fight the climate crisis, we have to make some change, but it's a fraction of the kind of changes that we've endured this year. For me, therefore, it's all really positive. This this lockdown, this pandemic has taught us that, um, amongst other things, we're not infallible. And, and our position on this world is uh, is potentially under threat. And actually, it's a problem that we're causing for ourselves. And actually, that we're capable of the kinds of changes that we need to make to solve the problems that we've caused. Well, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you today, Dale. That's a wrap for episode one of series three. We'd love to hear what you think. Please head over to Instagram or Twitter at Vegan Food and Living and at Simply Vegan Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. And um, as always, you can find more news and vegan stories on veganfoodandliving.com. See you next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.